I'll be honest, I've always found Harry Truman to be one of the most fascinating personalities to study in all of history. And in this class, we look at Harry Truman and the Jews. From his local politics all the way to the formation of the state of Israel, Truman had many significant Jewish relationships. As always, please like and share this podcast, and feel free to leave us a question or a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Welcome, everyone. Harry Truman and the Jews. On May 8th, 1948, Harry Truman's 64th birthday, that's almost exactly 75 years ago, in about a month or two. So Secretary of State George C. Marshall, who is the most respected man in the entire United States government, he was the one person who Truman really feared and admired. He was the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of State at the time. So George C. Marshall, pardon me for one second. There we go. George C. Marshall, someone who rarely gave compliments, he very rarely went out to social events at all. He gave a toast at Harry Truman's 64th birthday. Now, mind you, this is the most difficult period Certainly in the relationship between Marshall and Truman, this is when, as we're going to talk about in detail later tonight, this was when Marshall and Truman were battling it out. And there was a lot of tension regarding the state of Israel and whether or not it should be recognized and what the United States government ought to do about the potential for a Jewish state. There's tremendous tension. There's ever animosity between Marshall and Truman. It was now. And Marshall gets up and makes a toast, and he says as follows. The full stature of this man will only be proven by history. But I want to say here and now that there has never been a decision made under this man's administration affecting policies beyond our shores that has not been in the best interest of this country. And he concluded by saying, it is not the courage of these decisions that will live, but the integrity of the man. As I've mentioned, to many, I find Harry Truman to be one of the most compelling people in American history to study. Uh, not so much for his brilliant politics, although I think he was a very good politician, but because of his character, because of in- his integrity, because of his code, because of his values, we don't make many Harry Trumans, certainly not today. Harry Truman is born May 8th, 1884. His middle name was S, as I mentioned. It stood for nothing. He was the, the Harry was named for his uncle Harrison. The S was named after, as it were, his two grandparents, Solomon Young and Anderson Ship Truman. So the S was for Ship and for Solomon. And it really stood for nothing. As a matter of fact, when Truman was sworn in on FDR's sudden death, and Truman is sworn in, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Harlan Stone said, you know, raise your right hand, the whole thing. They said, I, Harry Solomon Truman, and Truman corrected him. I, Harry S. Truman. The S stood for nothing. And people would make fun of him for that. He was born to Martha and John Truman. They were, Truman was born in Lamar, Missouri. But when he was two years old in 1890, The Truman family moved to Independence, Missouri, which today is really just a neighborhood within Kansas City. But back then, it was a totally separate town, totally separate and removed from Kansas City. It was a hick town, kind of like a, uh, you know, a very small town. I think it was the county seat of Jackson County. John buys his house from a Jew, the first house that they lived in, a guy named Samuel Blitz for $3,000, one of the first Jews in town. And apparently the story goes, I don't know if this is confirmed. But John Truman was the Shabbos guy for the few Jews that lived in town in Independence, Missouri. Truman, I can get my slideshow to work. Of course, it doesn't like me right now. There we go. Truman, as a very young young child, Harry Truman, his parents saw it. It was actually, I believe the story was, was at a 4th of July celebration. And Truman only got excited when he heard the thunder, when he heard the fireworks, the sound, but not when the the fireworks were exploding, the light. His parents realized he couldn't see. And they brought him to an ophthalmologist who diagnosed him with flat eyeballs. I don't know what that means, but he had glasses from the, as a little child, which was unusual. And it would be something that would really limit and constrain him was his eyesight. 
Truman grew up in independence, went to the schools, was part of life in independence. And he would go ahead as a child. He would, you know, worked in independence. Then, you know, he had a very uneventful, unsignificant childhood in independence. And, you know, he would eventually grow up and, you know, become a teenager. And then after high school, he never went to college. He'd be the last president never to go to, never go to college. Never went to college. He tried to go to law school for a minute, but that didn't work. And he worked in Kansas City as a young adult. Worked in a bank. He worked in different places, doing a bunch of different odds and ends, jo- odd and ends jobs. And um, pardon me. He uh, so he worked in Kansas City until his father. Until his father, father's John. Oh, that's his mom. His mom was the most a remarkable woman. That's her later on in life. That's in, when he's in. Uh, that's already when he's in in the White House. That's his mother, who is a, a remarkable woman, Maddie Truman. For those who can't see, don't worry. Um, Maddie Truman. And, oh, before we go, that is an interesting story. That fellow, when Truman was a young boy, um, he had a classmate named Charlie Ross. And that's Charlie Ross as, uh, as an adult. And that was a, a childhood friend of Truman. Charlie Ross would actually go on to become a correspondent for some Missouri newspaper. And when Truman became president, uh, three days after he became president, he asked Charlie Ross to be his press secretary, which he was, which was a remarkable thing as his childhood friend would be his, uh, his press secretary. And when he was uh, that day, when he was appointed uh, press secretary, they got on the phone and called, uh, called their school teacher. Tilly Brown. She actually said something like, oh, Charlie, he was great. Truman, he he was all right. When Harry Truman was in his early 20s, John Truman's business crashed. And he ended up, he had to sell his house, move out of Independence, and he moved to a small town on the outskirts of Independence. So Independence on the outskirts of Kansas City, this was really out there. And they moved to a, a little town called Grandview, and they had a farm. And Tr- Harry Truman worked on the farm. And uh, that's, that's Harry on the, charm, on the farm. And that's what he did for a whole long time. Um, while he was there, he used to go back to Independence regularly in Grandview for a while. He, uh, he fell in love with his childhood sweetheart, uh, Bess Wallace, who we'll see in just a moment. Uh, but they never, you know, it's, he's been working on the farm and they, they would hang out together. And the real turning point in Harry Truman's life was World War I. World War I, when the United States enters the war, Harry Truman is 33 years old. We just zip through, you know, half of Truman's life without really saying much. And that's a remarkable story because Truman was really an unremarkable person until the time he was 33. He was a farmer, kid growing up in Grandview, Independence, Missouri. And when World War I broke out, he volunteered. Really, he shouldn't have been able to enlist because after all, he had terrible eyesight. He was 33, but he really wanted to serve. He had been in the National Guard, but he really wanted to sign up for the Army. They wouldn't have let him in, but he memorized the eye chart. So he passed his eye exam. So Truman enlists, he joins the artillery, Battery B, ends up becoming a captain. And it's in World War I that he emerges as a leader. He emerges as a person people respect. People found him, his, the, the soldiers who were under him found him to be honest. They found him to be fair. They found him to be an all-around nice guy. While in the army, he met two people who would really change the course of his life. One person was named Jim Pendergast. Jim Pendergast was a sergeant, I believe, or I'm not sure. Jim Pendergast, a young guy. His uncle was a person named Tom Pendergast. Tom Pendergast would go ahead and he was actually, this is back in the day, where you had political bosses where cities, counties were controlled by controlled by bosses, people who really controlled all the political appointments and were really controlling the whole city. And Tom Pendergast was one such person. He controlled Kansas City for about 20 years. And fatefully, Truman, during World War I, befriends Jim Pendergast, boss Tom's nephew, which would be very significant. The other person significant that he met during World War I, oh, that's him and Bess, Bess Wallace. Bess Wallace, let's go back. That's Bess, him and Bess. 
That's their house. Well, we really, I want to go back for, we'll go back to Bess in just a second. While he's in the army, he meets a young sergeant named Eddie Jacobson. Eddie Jacobson was from Kansas City and he was Jewish. And while they were in training, Truman set up a business partnership with Eddie Jacobson. They ran the army canteen. Jacobson had a business head and uh, they ran a canteen together, but that was short-lived. It was just for a few months. Uh, he He wrote a letter home. He wrote, I have a Jew in charge of the canteen by the name of Jacobson, and he is a crackerjack. <laughs> he showed great courage during the war, and he, he emerged as a leader. After the war, he goes ahead and he proposed, I mean, he had kind of unofficially proposed to Bess Wallace um, before the war, but it was after the war, after he returned, that's when he goes ahead and mar- marries Bess. Uh, and he was a tremendous family guy. Again, one of the things I admire about Truman are his values, type of the integrity that he had. Truman was a very, very faithful and devoted husband. They would have one child together, Margaret, who he absolutely adored. And um, he lived, don't try this at home, folks. He lived his whole life. That's him at a football game with with, uh, Bess. He lived his whole life in his mother-in-law's house. Don't try that at home. I'm sorry, Emo, if you're watching. He never really had his own house, even to the day he died. He he lived in, in the Wallace house. The Wallace called the Wallace Gates home. That, the, um, the Wallace home. He never, that, that's where he lived. That's in Independence, in Independence, Missouri. Uh, one of the, I've always found this to be one of the most touching letters, just kind of like the type of person in terms of how important family was to Truman. It was while he was president, his, his mother died while, while he was in office. And uh, he actually was trying to fly home. It was in the middle of a uh, you know, real crisis. And, and he, he flew home. Uh, she died while he was en route, and he penned his daughter, Margaret, really one of the most touching letters. He was, one of the things about Truman, he was an amazing diarist. He kept a journal that is really colorful, and he wrote a lot of beautiful letters. Uh, one, of that, one of the letters he wrote is, you should call your mom and dad every time you arrive in town. Oh, he says, he starts it off by, someday you'll be an orphan just as your dad is now. You should call your mama and dad every time you arrive into a town. Someday you'll understand what torture it is to be worried about the only person in the world that counts. You should know by now that your dad has only three such persons, your ma, you, and your Aunt Mary, his sister, Mary Jane. He was, he was and he really meant that. He was really a very devout family man, and he was um, a, a, a remarkable person. And he would remain a middle-class ca- middle guy, really, for his whole life. After World, World War I, really on the boat, that, if I could just add one last thing, I love this, is that his mother-in-law, uh, Mrs. Wallace, um, always thought that Bess married down. She would move into the White House with them and still thought Harry Truman wasn't good enough for his daughter. I love mother-in-laws. They're, they're, they're the best. Mother-in-law. They're the best. After the war, he comes back home and he decides to open a business with his buddy, Eddie Jacobson. They open up a haberdashery. Truman and Jacobson, you can actually see on, the, on that little slide, you could see it on the rug, Truman and Jacobson. It was a haberdashery where they sold garments. They didn't sell suits, but they sold shirts and hats and things like that. Um, and, you know, they, they formed a real partnership and a real bond. Uh, they're almost like, like brothers. The haberdashery would fail in 1920. That's Eddie Jacobson in the haberdashery. And that's actually, that's Truman with uh, his wife, Bess. And on the left, that's that's Truman, that's uh, Jacobson's wife, Bluma. Nice Jewish name. The haberdashery would close. 1922, the, co- the economy, the post-war economy, you know, really crashed. And Truman and Jacobson had to close their store. They did not declare bankruptcy. Again, integrity. And they would pay off the debts of that store, take Truman more than 15 years. And, um, you know, they would, uh, you know, remain close friends. Truman never invited he never invited Jacobson to his house for dinner. They were close. They were buddies. Yet he never invited Jacobson to his house. And the, here, I'll t- hold questions for a second. And the question is, is was he an anti-Semite? And the answer is, is that no. He lived again in his mother-in-law, um, Mrs. Wallace's house. They didn't have any guests. Mrs. Wallace, we're going to take questions at the end if you don't mind. We, Mrs. Wallace didn't have any guests ever in her house. So that's not really necessarily an indicator 
of the fact that they didn't hang out socially. And the truth of the matter is, it wasn't Mrs. Wallace probably didn't like having juice, but she didn't like having anyone having anyone at their house. After he goes ahead and the store closes, he has to go ahead and he goes back to becoming a farmer. But it's shortly after that, Tom Pendergast, you remember Jim, his buddy, so his uncle approaches him and asks him, how do you like to get into politics? Truman had a good experience in World War I being a leader. So he said, sure, let me give it a shot. He had really no other, nothing really better going for him. So Tom Pendergast said, how would you like to be the the judge of Jackson County? Now, judge sounds like you adjudicate things. But in Jackson County, the way it worked, the judge was not really, it wasn't a judge like we think about it. It was more like a county commissioner. And he would serve on the county commission, or he was a county judge, for several years. Um, once and he and he built roads, did a lot of county improvements. He actually rebuilt the county courthouse in Jackson County Courthouse in Independence, something he took great pride in. Just as a sense of his integrity, a quote that I always found to be remarkable. At one point, he noticed there was so much corruption. Tom Pendergast, who are what do we got? Tom, that's our friend Tom. That's him as a that's Harry as a judge. That's that's Judge Truman. We think that's Kashkerman. Tom Pendergast was a good, was a kindly man who meant well, who probably broke many, many laws. He was corrupt, but in with good intention. And Truman would always have think fondly of him. But the reality is, you know, he was a corrupt guy. And there were a lot of corrupt people who were working in Jackson County. And Truman tells us, wrote in his journal in his journal how at one point he had a contractor who steal who stole basically $10,000, but he had to let it go because had he, had he not let it go, it would have, through a serious sequence of events, it would, it would have caused another $3 million to have, been, to have been robbed. So by not calling it out, he actually saved the county $3 million or so. And he wrote, I had to let a former saloon keeper and murderer, a friend of the bosses, that's Tom Pendergast, steal about $10,000 from the general revenues of the county to satisfy my ideal associate and keep the crooks from getting a million or more out of the bond issue. Was I right or did I compound the felony? I don't know. Am I administer in it? Am I an administrator or not? Or am I just a crook to compromise in order to get the, ju- the job done? You judge, I can't. I just love the fact that he acknowledges he's not quick to assume, like, oh, this is right, this is wrong. He understands he was in a complicated situation. He did the best that he could. After a number of years, it's 1934, he's now 50 years old. He's termed out, if I recall correctly, he's term limited out of being judged for Jackson County. And he really is at a dead end in his career. He's 50 years old. He's done, you know, again, he has an interesting career, but really has nothing to show for himself. And he has to go back to the, to the Wallace home without really much, you know, future, very, a lot of uncertainty. It's a remarkable. Thing. You know, we got to celebrate the holiday Passover, Pesach. And you no know, main characters, obviously, the story of the Exodus Jewish people from the land of Israel is Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. And it's a remarkable thing. Torah tells us when Moshe Rabbeinu is born, we know the story. His mother floats him down the Nile and he's rescued by the daughter of the Pharaoh and he's raised in the Pharaoh's house. And we know the story. What happens? He sees an Egyptian beating a Jew and he protects the, the Jew and he stands up. And the word gets back to the Pharaoh and Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses has to run for his life. The verse says he flees to the land of Midian, meets Yisro, gets married. And then a couple of verses later, Moses sees the burning bush. God says, I want you to be the leader of the Jewish people. And he sends it, Moshe, they, he has a conversation with God. Moses becomes the leader of the Jewish people. What's remarkable, Medrash points out, how old was Moshe? He was 80 years old. And he would die at 120. But think about that. For 80 years, who is Moses? He's a nobody. He's, he's not accomplished anything. I mean, yeah, he was raised in the Pharaoh's house, but he had to leave. He was a teenager, for, you know, at that point. For at least 60 years. He lives in Midian, according to one commentary. He was actually a fugitive. He would bounce around from one country to another. And there's a tremendous lesson there. You know, Some of us aren't as young as we used to be. And it's very easy to think, well, 
I've lived my life. I've accomplished whatever it is I've accomplished. And probably the most productive years are behind me. Biggest impact that I'm going to have as a person, it's behind me. I'm 80 years old. What else am I going to do? Guess what? You're a Moshe Rabbeinu. You're going to be the greatest leader of the Jewish people. Not to compare Harry Truman to Moses, but it's a remarkable story. One of the things I've always found so inspiring about a guy like Truman is that he's 50 years old and okay, he was a county judge, which, you know, it was an interesting job, but he didn't, no college degree, had no wealth at all. He's still living in his mother-in-law's house. And it wouldn't be till he's 50 till he actually rises to any kind of influence, any kind of stature, which I've always found to be an absolutely remarkable thing. One day he gets a call from Tom Pendergast and says, how would you like to be senator? Now that is a real job. Truman was, the truth of the matter is, is Tom Pendergast offered the job to three other people, but they were either unavailable or unwilling to take the job. So he had to go with Truman. During his first term, and he gets, he got, he, he got elected and he made it into the Senate. But in his first term as in the Senate, he wasn't, people didn't respect him. He was called the Senator from Pendergast because everyone knew that Tom Pendergast was the boss and got him elected. And he didn't really accomplish all that much. Um, in his first term, one of the best little anecdotes is Senator Lewis from Illinois told him, he said, Harry, don't start off with an inferiority complex. For the first six months, you'll wonder how the heck you got here. And after that, you'll wonder how the heck the rest of us got here. Still say the same about the Senate today. He actually would get reelected in 1940, which is something that probably politicians in the future should have noticed that he won that election, his re-election, by just a few votes, like something like 8,000, very slim, you know, minority that he won that, his re-election. And it would be in his second term in the Senate where he actually rose, he actually accomplished something and he actually became a significant person. By this point, the United States hadn't entered the war, but World War II was raging in Europe. And the United States had built up a very large military industrial complex to quote a later president. And there was a lot of waste, potential waste, as you can well imagine. You have all these contractors paying, you know, a million dollars, you know, or charging a million dollars for, you know, a, a, you know, a, a screw, right? So Truman formed a committee. It was called the, it was unofficially known as the Truman Committee, where they we, we, we'd go ahead and, and look into different government contractors to see if they were, you know, supplying quality stuff that they were that they had contracted to, to, to supply? Were they overcharging? Was there waste? And he saved the country billions and billions of dollars. That's Truman on the, on the Truman Committee. Um, as senator in 1943, he, uh, he would go to a Chicago rally where he spoke prominently and stood up uh, and spoke out about the horrors of what the, the atrocities that were being reported in Europe uh, against the Jews. And Truman spoke in, in front of quite a large audience and, uh, you know, really taught speaking out that the United States needed to do something. In 1944, FDR decided he was going to run for an unprecedented fourth term. His vice president was a guy named Henry Wallace, who was very extreme, and people did not think he was particularly attractive uh, on that ticket. So the, De the Democratic National Committee had convinced Roosevelt that they really needed a new person. Um, to run as vice president. And they really just went through all the options and really no one really stood out. And here you had this senator from Missouri who had had some success and popularity on the Truman Committee. And they decided, you know what, let's stick a par of guy and stick him in there. He's, you know, unassuming. He was squeaky clean. He had a good reputation. He was a nice guy. And they decided, you know, let's stick him as the vice president nominee. It really came out of nowhere. For Truman, this was, it was like totally out of nowhere. And indeed, in 1940, um, he becomes, he's, you know, FDR is, is elected and Truman becomes the vice president. Two people couldn't have been more polar opposites than FDR and Truman. FDR was slick. FDR, you know, was smooth. FDR knew how to talk to people. Truman was not. Truman was blunt. Truman had integrity. Truman, Truman was not duplicit. And FDR, shamefully, really kept Truman completely completely out of the loop, both in terms of any policies that, the, the, that FDR had been working on, and most significantly, Truman didn't know a thing about the A-bomb. Joseph Stalin 
knew about the United States A-bomb before Harry Truman did. That's, that's a fact. And that's, that's really to, to FDR's discredit that he kept his vice president so in the dark. People who were on the real inside knew that FDR was not going to last that presidency. He was terribly ill when he got elected. And the people on the real inside um, really knew whoever the vice president was, was going to end up becoming the president. On April 12, 1945, after presiding over the Senate, Truman walked over to Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, who he was good buddies with, went over to Sam Rayburn's office to have a quick drink. Truman loved bourbon. So he went over to Sam Rayburn's office to get a drink. When he gets to the office, he got a message from, uh, he got a message to get to the White House as quickly as possible. Now, FDR wasn't at the White House. FDR was at Warm Springs down in Georgia. So when he got that phone call, his response only is Truman had these like real wonderful idioms that are like, I don't know, I guess is how people in Missouri talk. He said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson. Sorry, as a rabbi, I shouldn't be saying that. But that was his response when he got that. And he ran out of the office. He ran through the halls of the Capitol unescorted. He got into a car without any secret service. And he got to the White House at around 525, where Eleanor Roosevelt was waiting, and uh, to which she says, Harry, the president, is dead. Truman was unable to speak. He was after he's able to compose himself. He goes over to Eleanor. He says, is there anything I can do for you? To which she says, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one who's in trouble now. And he takes the oath of office. Oh, that's him running for that's That's one of the only two times that he met with FDR. One of two times, and they didn't speak any content. That's Truman taking the oath of office with Best, and that's FDR's cabinet. Most of his cabinet would actually resign. Only a few people would stay on, and Truman would have to reestablish the, uh, the, um, the cabinet. Immediately after becoming president, unimaginable the amount of stress and the amount of difficulties that he had to, to immediately jump into, again, not knowing anything, not having been briefed, not having been kept in the loop by Truman, by FDR, shortly after being sworn in, Secretary of War Stimson goes over to him and says, Mr. Truman, there's something emergency that we have to talk about as soon as possible of the highest importance. And two days later, he would tell him about the, the atomic bomb, which was in its final stages of development. And it would be one of Truman's, would be clearly Truman's biggest decision in terms of impact of world history was him dropping the bomb. Truman never, he, he understood the implications of dropping the bomb, but he felt there was really no alternative. And that, that is indeed, without you know, getting too far afield, that's the, that's the sense that most historians have is he really didn't really have much of an option. But it's just remarkable to think the magnitude of making that decision in, in, within 100 days. Immediately after this is, you know, within days, Hitler is dead. Europe is, is uh, you know, the war in Europe ends. And the, they have one of the great big, you know, the big three meetings of Stalin, at this point now it's Truman and Churchill at Potsdam, where they're going to talk about what post-World War uh, Europe would look like. He had to deal with millions of returning war veterans who needed jobs. He had to deal with the economy, which would go up and down and up and down immediately after the war. And he had to deal with civil rights issues. As troops came home, troops, who, black troops who had fought together and given up their lives, business as usual, like what was before the war, would no longer you know, hold. And civil rights really became a, a, a pressing issue. And uh, you know, Truman would be the first president to speak that's at an NAACP rally uh, with Walter White, who was a forgotten hero. Walter White was the head of the NAACP back then. Um, Truman would appoint the first Jewish solicitor general, Philip Perlman, and the head of the uh, first would be the head of the TVA under under uh, Roosevelt was David Lilienthal. Truman would appoint him to the Atomic, I forget what it's the AEC, the Atomic Committee, the uh, the committee that that really governed uh, the atomic bomb. Truman, although he's president, really was a regular person. Everyone would say, if Harry Truman could be president, my next door neighbor could be president. There's really a touching story. I've always found this to be a really cute story. Immediately after he becomes, he's sworn in, three days later, he gave a speech in front of a joint session of Congress. And, you know, the day before, earlier in that day, Sam Rayburn, who was the Speaker of the House, who was close friends with Truman, he called him up and said, he said, I can, you're no longer Harry. I want you to understand, you know, you're the president of the United States. You're President Truman to me. Truman gets up to give his speech. 
He's in front of a joint second, uh, a joint session of Congress, and Truman be begins starting. And everyone's giving a round of applause, cheering, right? He starts speaking. Sam Rayburn taps him on the shoulder and says, Harry, wait a minute, I need to introduce you. And it was a hot mic. It was caught by everyone. And I thought it was just so touching that the bottom line is he was still Harry Truman. When you talk about Harry Truman and the Jews, clearly the most significant discussion is going to be the role of Truman founding the state of Israel. It can't be overstated how difficult of a moment this was and how stressful this was for Truman. Margaret Truman would call it the most difficult dilemma that he had ever faced. Just brief history of what was going on. After World War I, or during World War I, you had the Balfour De Declaration, which kind of gave put, would put Great Britain in charge of Palestine, British mandate, with the eventual plan not really so hammered out that Israel, that Palestine would be a, a future home for the Jewish people. After World War II, Great Britain's economy tanked, and they could no longer support the British mandate and the troops that were necessary to keep the very, very tenuous peace, if that, in Palestine between the Jews and, and, the, and the Palestinians. And Great Britain declared that they're pulling out. And the question was, what was going to happen to Israel? In November of 1947, a dramatic vote in the UN, we were talking about that before this class started, the UN voted for the partition plan, which would essentially divide Palestine into an, to a, an Arab state and a Jewish state as well. The US supported the UN vote, um, but the real question would be, would, would the United States then go ahead and actually support a Jewish homeland? And this became a tremendously contentious issue because on the one hand, Truman, specifically, he felt he was a humanitarian and he felt the plight of the Jews and the, the refugees from the Holocaust. And he felt that deeply. Number two, he was a very religious man and he had studied the Bible and he felt that the land of Israel belonged to the Jews. But on the other hand, inside of his government, both the departments of defense and more importantly, the Department of State were terribly against the United States recognized a Jew, recognizing the Jewish homeland for two reasons. Number one, they needed the Arabs' oil. And number two, they were concerned that the Arabs would use this as a way of building relations with the USSR, with the Soviet Union. And this is the beginning, the early stages of the Cold War. And it would just really create a big wedge even further between the United States and the, uh, and the Soviet Union. Many thought that the, the disagreement within the, within the administration was about anti-Semitism, that the people who were against Israel were anti-Semites. Marshall, his secretary of, of, uh, of defense, uh, Forrestal, it's a problem, that's a, probably a little overstated. It really was, they were conflicted on what their goals were politically. It really was a genuine conflict. Really what made matters worse was the fact that Jews and Zionists, we can sometimes be our own worst enemy. And people were yelling at Truman. Jews and Zionists were vocal against Truman for not, you know, immediately jumping to, to you know, the Jewish homeland's aid. And he was getting abused, particularly Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver uh, would, would, would just pester Truman. Truman would offer what I thought. Again, rabbis shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. When, again, he had these great one-liners. He was so frustrated with all the abuse he was getting from the Jewish community. Truman quipped, Jesus Christ couldn't please them when he was on earth. So how could anyone expect that I would have any luck? I thought that was kind of funny. Truman, Truman's patience wore thin from all this bombardment. Marshall was the most respected man. Truman would never call him by his first name. He was always General Marshall. Marshall was vehemently opposed to the recognition of a Jewish homeland. If you actually fast forward, at one point, and just a few months later, right before the recognition of Israel, Marshall told Truman at a showdown, you know, of all the different people within his cabinet and government, he told Truman, if you go ahead and you recognize the Jewish homeland, I'm going to vote against you in the upcoming elections. Keep in mind, this is the beginning of 1948. November is an election. He said, I'm going to vote against you, and I'm going to let the country know that your own Secretary of State, the most respected man in the government, I'm going to vote against you. He told that to Truman, by the way, two days after he offered something like that, two days after that toast at Truman's birthday. So Truman's really feeling tremendous pressure. 
tremendous pressure not to do anything and just kind of leave the issue to the UN. Chaim Weitzman was someone that Truman deeply admired and respected. He had got to know him over the, over the years, and he really admired and respected him. As a matter of fact, when he first met him, he couldn't pronounce his name, so he called him Cham. He thought it was like, he liked it. He liked it. He would say of, of Weitzman, he was a wonderful man, one of the wisest people I think I ever met, a leader, one of the kind you read about. And Truman, Weitzman came to go ahead and try to plead his case before Truman. And sure enough, the famous story goes that what Truman would have none of it. He decided at that point he was so burnt out from dealing with it. He said, I'm, I'm not dealing, I'm not meeting with Weitzman. And it became a, mo- a, a, you know, a real issue. And Jacobson, Eddie Jacobson, who had heard about what was always going on, he never took advantage. And that's Eddie Jacobson later on in life. Eddie Jacobson never asked Truman for a favor. Never would, and he would visit Truman regularly. Never asked him for a favor. The story goes, it's a true story, is that on March 13th, without an appointment, Jacobson walked into the White House. Matt Connolly, who was Truman's functionally his, his uh, chief of staff, told him, yeah, he's in the Oval Office, you can meet him, but don't talk to him about Palestine. Don't talk to him about Palestine. First they schmoozed, Jacobson walked in, how's the family, how's the wife, how's the kids, great. And then he said he, well, he brought up the Palestine issue. And Jacobson would write the following. You know, Truman, he, he clammed up. He, he just got all red in the face. And he said, in all the years of our friendship, he never talked to me in the manner or in any way even approaching it. My dear friend, the president of the United States was at that moment as close to being an anti-Semite as a man could possibly be. And in a moment of inspiration, kind of absurd, Jacobson, seeing Truman really upset, he noticed that Truman's, Truman admired Andrew Jackson. There was a little statue of Jackson off to the side of the Oval Office. And Eddie Jacobson said, he pointed to the bust of Andrew Jackson. He said, and this is what he wrote. And by the way, these stories are both confirmed by both Jacobson and Truman. They would both tell the story virtually identically. He said, Harry, all of your life, you have had a hero. I too have a hero, a man I never met, but who I think is the greatest Jew who ever lived. I'm talking about Chaim Weitzman. He's a very sick man, almost broken in health, but he traveled thousands of miles just to see you and to plead the cause of my people. Now you refuse to see him just because you were insulted by some of our American Jewish leaders, even though you know that Weitzman had absolutely nothing to do with these insults and would be the last man to be party to them. It doesn't sound like you, Harry, because I thought you could take this stuff they've been handing out. There's an amazing medrash that my Rosh Hashiva used to share. Remember the story, remember the story of the Tower of Babel, Migdal Bavel, Tower of Bavel. It's a generation or two, a few generations after the story of the flood with Noah and the flood, and the next generation, the, door, the, the generation of the Tower of Bavel. They built this tower, this tower represents the rebellion against God. And they fought against God, as it were. They rebelled. Just a few generations after God destroys humanity. And the Medrash says, Meshiv Tova Tachazra, Lo Tamashrami Beso. It's a verse in, in, I believe, in Proverbs that says, those who go ahead and they have, they're ungrateful, they're, they they're display ingratitude. Lo Tashavrami Beso, evil will befall them. That's the story of the Migdal Bavel, the people of the generation of the tower, because Rashi explains the Medrash, is that here you are, the people of this tower, you're rebelling against God, you're fighting as it were against God. Don't you recognize the kindness that God did that just a few generations ago, God saved Noah from the flood? And how could you rebel against God? Where's your gratitude? God saved Noah after all. And here you are rebelling. Medrash says it was a lack, it was a demonstration, a lack of gratitude. They're ungrateful. How could they? My rabbi always said, imagine you're the publisher of the New York Times and God brings a flood. What's the headline of the flood in the New York Times? If I'm the publisher of the New York Times, you know what the headline is? God destroys world out of his wrath when people fight with God. You know, yes, on the bottom of the page, we'll say, and by the way, God saved Noah too. That's important. But isn't the story of the flood? 
Don't start up with God. And here the Medrash is saying, you know what the failure of the generation of the Tower of Bavel, you know what their failure was? Lack of gratitude. That's not the, that's not the failure. The failure is they didn't learn the lesson from the generation before them. And my Rosh Hashiva would always say, when it comes to motivation, when it comes to inspiration, always remember that gratitude is a more powerful driver than fear. Think about it. The lesson of the fact that humanity got destroyed during the story of the flood is fear of God, retribution that God has for those who start up with him. There's also the story of Noah. The gratitude that that, nation, that generation of the Migdal, of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel, the gratitude that they should have had that God saved Noah should have been more powerful driver because gratitude is a more powerful driver than fear. Truman, by supporting a Jewish homeland, jeopardized his future re-election plan. He jeopardized getting into a fight with Marshall, which he would. But what won? Which emotion? The fear of retribution from Marshall and the State Department and losing the election? Or the gratitude that he had for Eddie Jacobson? And this story, Larry, if we could just wait till the end of, end of the program. And he would say, the story goes that Truman began drumming his fingers on the desk. He wheeled around in his chair and with his back to Jacobson sat, this is from David McAuliffe's book. He sat looking out the window into the garden. For what seemed to Jacobson like centuries, neither of them said anything. Then swinging about and looking at Jake, Jacobson in, the, in his eyes, Truman said what Jacobson later described as the most endearing words he had ever heard. And he said, Truman tells Jacobson, you win, you bald-headed blank. I'll see him. Jacobson left the White House, went across the street, and ordered a double bourbon. <laughs> and Truman would leave, live up to it, and he would see Weitzman. And he gave his, his word and pledge to Weitzman, and it, it actually ended up becoming a, a really a difficult moment because the State Department get the, didn't get the memo that Truman had said he was going to go ahead and support the State of Israel, and the State Department issued a proclamation that the United States is not going to recognize the State of Israel. And Truman, it was, it was probably the biggest PR mess in Truman's, in Truman's entire presidency was this issue, uh, but it worked. And uh, 11 minutes after Israel, um, after the Jewish state declared itself the state of Israel, the United States recognized, um, recognized Israel. Chaim Weitzman would give Truman a safer Torah, a Torah scroll, which is on display now at the Truman Library and Museum in Independence. And he would give him a Torah as a sign of his, you know, gratitude and appreciation. The story goes that upon receiving the Torah, Truman from, you know, a farmer from Missouri says, gee, I've always wanted one of these. Later, the chief rabbi of Israel, I, uh, Rabbi Isaac Halevi Herzog, uh, would, would visit. And that's, that's David Ben-Gurion with, with Abba Ibn and, and, and Truman. He would... Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Herzog would go ahead and tell Truman that, uh, that he he'd said, God put you in your mother's womb so you'd be an instrument to bring the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. David Niles, who was one of Truman's, he was like a troubleshooter. He worked, he was one of his assistants and aides. He, he was actually Jewish, one of the people, Jewish, Jews on, fat, on, on staff who was really, you know, encouraging Truman to recognize the state of Israel. He said, like, that was a little over the top. We looked at Truman, Truman was crying. Truman, after recognizing the state of Israel, decided he wanted to run for a second term. And know the story of one of the greatest upsets, the great, not one of, by far the greatest political upset in American history is every pundit, every expert thought Truman was going to get slammed um, in the 1948 election. There's a great story, Clark Clifford who was one of Truman's aides would tell is uh, they were on a, you know, campaigning on the, on, on a train campaigning. They went on a big whistle stop tour. They would go around the country campaigning. And uh, before the election, Newsweek put out a survey of 50 journalists, 50 journalists, you know, what did they predict? Who was going to win? And all 50 of them, they, and one day he got off the train. He wanted to see what the, the publication came. The day came and then the edition of Newsweek, you know, it was published. He got true. Uh, Clark Clifford got off the train. They had stopped in some godforsaken town. He gets off the train and he goes to a newsstand and he buys a copy of Newsweek. And he sees, lo and behold, what does Newsweek say? 
All 50 journalists predict that Truman is going to lose. So this is what Clark Clifford writes. He so saw it and he so he had the copy of Newsweek. And um, he stuck it under his jacket. He didn't want he didn't want to show it to Truman. It would be so demoralizing. So he says, so I walked into the train. President Truman was sitting there. And so I cheerily said, good morning, Mr. President. He said, good morning, Clark. And I said, another busy day ahead. Yes, he said. So I walked off. I almost got by him when he said, what does it say? And I said, what's that, Mr. President? He said, what does it say? And I said, now, what does what say? He said, I saw you get off and go into the station. And I think you probably went in there to see if they had a copy at news of the Newsweek magazine. I think it is possible you might have it under your jacket right there. The way you're holding your arm. So Clark Clifford said, well, I said, yes, sir. So I handed it to him and he turned the page and looked at it. And he said, I know every one of these 50 fellows. There isn't one of them who has enough sense to pound sand in a rat hole. Gamblers had Truman at a 15 to 1 odds of winning that election. Some had him at 30 to 1 odds. Truman goes back home to independence to vote. Independence didn't even bother making any kind of contingency plans. What happened if Truman wins? Are we going to make a parade or any kind of celebration? Because they knew, of course, he would lose. And indeed, what happened? He won against all odds. This political scientists are trying to figure out how did this happen? And it's, it's not super clear. But... You know, one of the things, most important messages that I, I, I feel so important to share, the Silas Yasharman, the great classic works in Jewish ethics, talks about zrizos. Zrizos is typically understood as zeal, alacrity. People oftentimes think what it means is when you have a mitzvah to do, go run to do the mitzvah. The truth of the matter is, although that is a component of zrizos, of alacrity and zeal, zrizos means something much more, much deeper. The Silas Yasharman says, Tire, you should know. Nature of mankind, we're lazy. We're very weighted down. We don't like working hard. Someone wants to be successful in their Judaism, in their spiritual growth. If you want to be successful as a Jew, if you want to be successful in your relationship with God, it's going to require fighting your nature. Naturally, I want to sit in bed to be closer to God, to build our spirituality, requires strength. It requires courage. It requires hard work. These gaber dares, we have to become strength, strong. We have to have courage. Do so if we just kind of go back to our natural tendencies, we will not be successful. Quotes the passage, we should be as bold as a leopard, as as Light as an eagle, ruts katsvi, we should be swift like a deer, we should have the courage of a lion, to do the will of God in heaven. This is true when it comes to our service of God, when it comes to our Judaism, when it comes to building a relationship with God and observing the Torah. It requires courage, it requires grit, it requires determination, it requires rolling up our sleeves and getting the job done. It's true about our relationship with God, and it's true with almost anything in life. Anything that's worthwhile in life will take a lot of work. People forget about Truman and how he won. He traveled more than 31,000 miles on a whistle stop board. He went from town to town. He made over 352 speeches. And, uh, you know, Clark Clifford would say it was just the amount of work that Truman put into that campaign. That's why he won. He wins the election. At that point, it's a remarkable thing. It was really during the election campaign. <laughs> his daughter, his, he was playing piano one day. Basically, the piano almost crashed through the second floor. And the architect of the White House and the engineers said that the White House was basically falling apart. And Truman had to move across the street and live in the Blair House, which is now the official guest house of the White House. And they gutted, that's the interior of the White House. They gutted the entire White House during, during Truman's presidency. While at Blair House, there was an assassination attempt. That's the Blair House, where one Secret Service guard was killed, one of the assassins were killed, and Truman was nearly killed. The defining point of Truman's second term as president would be the Korean War. Right after the Cold War, right after World War, World War II and the hostilities between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Korean War would be one of the first real, be the real first real conflict um, 
where the North Koreans invade South Korea, they cross the 38th parallel, which was an arbitrary line demarcating the South and North, the North kind of being controlled by the sphere of the Soviets, the South by the United States, and the North Koreans who were backed by the Soviets crossed the line. Truman thought that this was the end of civilization, as did many people. The Korean War is, is, is a long forgotten war, and that's a shame. During the Korean War, it was one of the moments of, of real, real crisis in the country. This is right after World War II. The country had, the, the, the world had just seen the most horrific things, and the atom bomb had just been dropped only, you know, less than a decade earlier. And people thought this was potential for Armageddon. And Truman thought this had potential for Armageddon and could lead to a nuclear holocaust. And he wanted to do whatever he could to get out of this war, but at the same time, not give in to Soviet aggression. After all, that's what led to World War II, was when Hitler just gobbled up other countries that no one would stand up for them. So it was a very tricky balance. Truman had a great general, General MacArthur, who was the real hero. And um, he, he had spectacular initial uh, victories in the war in Korea. And he was able to push back, drive back the North Koreans. And Truman decided he wanted to go ahead and meet Douglas MacArthur. And um, I'm talking somewhere, and that's him with MacArthur. And they met at Wake Island. Interesting story that happened. They met at Wake Island. Two things. First of all, he met, MacArthur made Truman basically fly three quarters of the way around the world to meet him. A little unusual, right? MacArthur really should be answering to Truman. If MacArthur, Truman wants to meet MacArthur, shouldn't MacArthur really be flying to Truman? Truman was a humble guy. Truman gets off the plane at Wake Island, and what happens? MacArthur is there, and he says, how are you doing, Mr. President, and shakes his hand. There's a problem with that, because what's a general supposed to do when he sees the president of the United States of America? He should have saluted the president. He was insubordinate. MacArthur never felt that he had to answer to Truman. He always looked down on Truman, and he thought Truman was not worthy. There's an amazing thing. If you look in the book of Deuteronomy, Parshas Kisov, I believe it's chapter 28 or so, the Torah lists series 10, 11 different curses. Different people commit different crimes, different sins. You get cursed. Different commentaries want to know, why is it these specific 10 or 11 things? Why do you get cursed for all the mitzvahs? Many mitzvahs in the Torah. You have to keep all the mitzvahs. Obviously, something specific and unique about these mitzvahs. But the last one, I believe it's number 12, is very interesting. It says, is called A curse be the person who doesn't uphold this Torah. And Ramban says what that means, it doesn't mean a curse be anyone who transgresses anything in the Torah. That's not what the Torah is talking about. You go ahead and he says, if we're lazy, maybe we give in to temptation. We're going to have to give our answer to God. That's fine. But that's not what the curse is talking about. The curse is talking about the guy who says, I don't believe God has the right to tell me to do this mitzvah. So for example, a person goes, to eat, goes ahead and eats non-kosher because it's cheaper. It looks good. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing if a person says, I'm not going to keep kosher. I'll do all the other 612 mitzvahs. But kosher, for example, that I'm not keeping because I don't believe God has the authority to tell me what to do. That, says Ramban, that's who the Torah is talking about. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a co- you're, you're the boss in, a, in an office and you have an employee. I don't know. He never gets the job done. You ask him for an assignment. Can you, you know, may, file this report? And he gets distracted, he's lazy, and he doesn't file the report. All right, maybe you keep him, maybe you fire him, maybe you reprimand him. Let's say you give that employee, say, hey, can you please file this report? And he's a star employee, does everything great. And he says, I don't believe you have the authority to tell me to file this report. What do you do with an employee like that? You fire him on the spot, because he's now the boss. Tama tells us he's called a mumer ledover echa. Person is a heretic for one thing. You're complete. You're not. You're not an employee. You're the boss. If you can tell the boss what you do and what you don't do, you're you're now the one in charge. Biggest mistake Truman ever made in his entire presidency was not firing General, in my opinion, General MacArthur on that on the spot because MacArthur would be terribly insubordinate. Later on in the war, when at a few months later Truman was at a point where he was able to go ahead and he was so wanted to be so careful not to get into any kind of 
fight with North, with, with the Chinese or the Russians. He didn't want anyone to you know, use the nuclear bomb. And he told time and time again to MacArthur that MacArthur was to lead the army and not to make any political pronouncements, not make any speeches. That's not your job. Your job is to be the general. And Truman had worked together with the Russian, with, you know, through the State Department. They had worked the potential for a ceasefire in 19, I think it's 1951 or so. And it was almost like a, something like a day or a week before they were about to finalize it. You know, MacArthur gets on the radio and makes some pronouncement how we need to bomb China back to like the Middle Ages or something like that. And destroy, that was the end of that peace negotiation. The war would go on for another several years. And Douglas MacArthur is responsible, in my opinion. That was insubordination. He was told explicitly not to make that statement. And he violated Truman. And that would cause countless American lives. That, in my opinion, are MacArthur's fault. MacArthur would eventually get sacked. And um, he would be given a hero's welcome back in the United States. He was tremendously popular. And Truman's popularity sank to an all-time low. It was at this point when they're in the quagmire of, of the Korean War. His, remember, his press secretary and good friend Charlie Ross died suddenly in the middle of a press conference. And Truman was at an all-time low. His daughter, Margaret, tried to become a professional singer and was speaking and, and was singing in different, you know, places. And he, she sang publicly a few days after the sacking of MacArthur and after the death of Charlie Ross. And there was a, a singing critic who wrote the following, who wrote a disparate, not a, it was very polite, but an honest review of Margaret's singing abilities. And it, she wasn't great. Truman, who probably was emotionally volatile at this point, you know, just he, you know, he had lost his friend. He didn't have his press secretary, both as a friend and someone who can help him filter things out. And, you know, the war in Korea was really, um, you know, just really hurting him emotionally. He wrote the following letter, which somehow got its way in, to, to the, Paul, the guy's name was Paul Hume. And I don't think Hume really tried to get this public, but somehow it got public. Truman wrote the following letter. Mr. Hume, I've just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. I've come to the conclusion that you are an eight ulcer man on four ulcer pay. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who, he was only 34, who wishes he could have been successful. When you write such poppycock as was in the back section of the paper you work for, it shows conclusively that you're of the beam at least of four of your ulcers. It shows, I'm sorry, it shows that you're off the beam and at least four of your ulcers are at work. Someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. Westbrook Pegler, who is a, a critic of Truman, a gutter snipe is a gentleman alongside you. I hope you accept that statement as a worse insult than the reflection on your ancestry. And, that, and people are ridiculed. It's interesting. It actually was one of those letters that was, at, and Margaret assumed that for sure my dad didn't write that. That was, you know, someone, but it was really was Truman. And it was initially embarrassing, but in the long run, it showed he was really was a human guy. And someone insulted his daughter, you know, he had a need. And Truman would always try to say, there are two different people. There's President Truman and there's Harry Truman. Harry Truman's allowed to stick up for his dad. The end of his uh, the presidency, 1952, the question would be, who'd be the next president? He was hoping that Eisenhower would go ahead and be the Democratic nominee. And Eisenhower, no one knew what Eisenhower's political affiliation was. Eisenhower at that point, you know, signed up with the Republicans. And Truman and Eisenhower had a very deep relationship. And, and they were close friends and they worked closely together throughout the years. But, you know, through the campaign, their relationship just really soured to the point that when Eisenhower would win the election in 1952, the tradition is that during the inauguration, the president goes, the president-elect, his wife go into the White House, have coffee with the outgoing president, and they go together in a car to the inauguration. Well, Truman didn't do well. Eisenhower, Truman, uh, Eisenhower refused to do that, and Truman was really, really miffed. Not clear what exactly led to, uh, you know, what led to that rift. There are different theories, but it's it's um, it's not clear. We'll just end with two two last ideas. There is. You know, we all know the story of the Jews and the golden calf. Jews sin, golden calf. It's a hard 
hard story to really understand. And the Torah tells us that Moses comes down the mountain. He sees the golden calf, does what he's supposed to do. And the verse says that Vayar Moshe, Moshe sees and that, 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 that Aaron, Kiparua Aaron, Aaron exposed the Jewish people with their sin. What exactly did he expose? What is that a reference to? And I believe it's Rambat. No, it is Rabbi Sparno, I believe, who says that what happened was it was very clear that there weren't enough, there wasn't good leadership amongst the Jewish people. Because had there been good leaders amongst the Jewish people, they would have told the Jews, this is a terrible idea. What are we doing? Building a golden calf and eagle up. How can we do such a thing? Had there been good leadership, never would have happened. And that's what means Aaron exposes the Jewish people. They don't have enough good leaders to go ahead and prevent them from you know, doing this terrible sin. And it always struck me. I said, what do, you, what do you mean they didn't have good leaders? What about Aaron? We know about other real wonderful sterling people that were there at the time. Gore, Kalev, there were tremendous leaders. What, is, what, what do you mean that the Jews didn't have good leaders? And I believe what the explanation is, is typically when we talk about, we all know leadership matters. People who are influenced, can really influence big groups of people because leadership is so important. And usually when we think of leadership, we think about the president, the CEO of the company, the quarterback on the football team. That's not necessarily what leadership means because there's secondary leadership and tertiary leadership. You don't have to be the guy at the top of that pyramid to be influential. The second degree leader, the third degree leader, that's what the Sparno is telling us was the failure of the Jewish people. Yeah, they had people at the top were fine, but what are the people one step below them, two steps below them? That was the failure. We talk about leadership and the power of leadership. We don't just mean the guy on the top. We mean people lower down, middle management, you and me. All of us are in that role because mid-level leadership is tremendously influential. And that was what was lacking with the Jewish people. One of the, I believe, one of the most remarkable things is an observation that Paul Johnson, very conservative, uh, the late Paul Johnson writes, I believe. This is one of the most remarkable things about Truman's presidency. You were the second and third degree leaders inside of his cabinet. You had the George Marshalls. You had Dean Acheson. Averill Harriman, men of tremendous character, very forceful, this complicated guy, but tremendous people. I believe it's Paul Johnson. I might be confusing myself. Paul Johnson says, you never had in the cabinet of the president people on the second and third degree level who are so capable. You have to go back to Washington's cabinet to find people of that stature. just want to end. Now we're as late. I keep on my desk, this, my house, I keep this little portrait on my desk. Keep that picture of Truman defeating Dewey. You know, always remind me, have courage, work hard. You can get the job done. But I also have this quote, and it's not from this episode, it's from a few years later. And I've always found this quote. I, I came across this quote, I must've been 20 years old. And I've always kept a copy of this quote with me. I find it to be one of the most inspiring quotes. Truman wrote this, this was found in his journal, in his diary. He wrote, I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he had taken a poll in Egypt. What would Jesus Christ have preached? I'm sorry, I've been quoting you, but he's true. What would Jesus Christ have preached if he had taken a poll in Israel? Where would the Reformation have gone if Martin Luther had taken a poll? It isn't polls or public opinion of the moment that counts. It is right and wrong in leadership. Men with fortitude, honesty, and a belief in the right that make epochs in the history of the world. It's a very powerful powerful quote. What's remarkable about this quote is when it was written. This was written in April, of, I think it was 1951. If you look in the history of Gallup poll, and you have the presidential approval rating. The interesting question, what was the lowest presidential approval rating of all time? And the answer is Harry Truman. Right here, how, what was going on with, when he sacked MacArthur. It's the lowest president, again, it not like it's been around for 250 years, really since the early 1900s. That was the lowest time of their presidential appro approval rating. Gemara and Shabbos, Talmud tells us, how do you say truth in Hebrew, MS? Talmud says two interesting things about the Hebrew words that make, the Hebrew letters that make up the word MS. Aleph, Mem, Tav, 
If you look at the physical shape of those letters, they're firm. They all have a base. They can stand on their own. Not only that, if you look at the letters, Aleph, Mem, Tuf, Aleph is at the first letter of the alphabet. Tuf is the last. Mem is in the middle. And the Talmud says, MS Kayom, MS, the letters that make up the word MS are firm. They strong. It's Kayom. It's established. They will, it will last for generations. And not only that, but MS is hard to find. You got to look for the Aleph over there, the Mem over here, the Tuf all the way down there. But you want to know what truth is? Truth is hard to find. But truth stands the test of time. Sheker, dishonesty. The Talmud says, what do we know about Sheker? If you look at the Hebrew letters that make up the word Sheker, dishonesty, Shin, Kuf, Resh, they all have one leg. They're not firm. Sheker has no permanence. Dishonesty has no permanence. And not only that, where is Sheker? The letters Shin, Kuf, and Resh are right one next to another. Sheker is everywhere. It's not hard to find dishonesty. Not hard to find a lack of integrity. But honesty, integrity, men of fortitude and courage, few and far between. And the way you can tell honesty and integrity is what stands the test of time. I want to go back to that quote that George Marshall at that birthday celebration. Read that again. George Marshall talks about Truman. He says, the full nature of this man will only be proven by history. Don't look at what the ratings were in the moment. You've got to let it bake a little bit. See what happens over the test of time. I want to say here and now that there has never been a decision made under this man's administration affecting policies beyond our shores that has not been in the best interest of this country. It is not the courage of these decisions that will live, but the integrity of the man. Virtually every historian will tell you that sacking MacArthur was the only choice that Truman had. Absolutely, in my opinion, strongly, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And despite the fact that at the, po- at the time, you know, the polls said that it was wrong, Truman was absolutely right that it's right and wrong in leadership. Men with fortitude, honesty, and a belief in right make the epochs in the history of the world. It takes courage. It takes honesty. It takes integrity. And just because people don't, might, might not recognize that at, at the moment, might not recognize that at the time, let's always remember, MS, Kayam, truth, integrity, honesty, that's what stands the test of time. I've gone way over. I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.